There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 16th of July 2010. Newcomers should look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website. You'll find hundreds of talks I've given over the years and you can download them for free. And while you're at it, remember too that I come on the air. I'm not backed by advertisers. Generally, the hosts take money from advertisers and bring them on as guests and, and push the products. I don't do that. So the ads you hear on this show are paid by the advertisers directly to the station uh, to pay for the staff and the broadcast and their equipment and their bills. So it's up to you, the listeners, to help me pay mine. At cuttingthroughmedius.com, you'll see the products I have for sale. There's very few because I give them more information than I do in writing uh, on the air, but I do have books there for sale. Uh, I make a lot of money for other people who take the stuff and write books with it, mind you. But uh, it's up to you to keep me going. So buy the books, the DVDs, and the discs I have for sale. And hopefully I can uh, just tickle over. or trick. Uh, well, I really do. I tickle over. Also remember, from the U.S. to Canada, you can use a personal check. You can use an international postal money order to order from your post office. And you can use PayPal to donate or to purchase. Just send a separate email uh, to me with your name, address, and the order, along with uh, the other PayPal uh, donation, and I'll get it out to you. Cash is okay as well. Some people just send cash through the mail, and the mail's not too bad generally. And across the rest of the world, it's the same thing. You can use uh, PayPal, uh, MoneyGram, Western Union, uh, some people just send cash from Europe as well, and so far it's still been accepted over here, even though we're all up and down like a yo-yo every day with the currency exchanges. But mind you, bigger minds than ours are in charge of it. As we well know, the big unseen gods of money, and we just have to take it as it comes because we're in a controlled society. But uh, as I say, help me out too, donate as well, because I generally get by on donations, uh, and uh, that means a lot. That helps to pay some of the bills I have for here. I'm on satellite upload, remember, for to put the stuff up for you to see. That costs money as well. And uh, I get trouble with the servers because I'm not really authorized to be out there um, and keeping you confused. Um, I'm really unauthorized. I'm trying to tell you what's really happening. And therefore, believe you me, from the phones, I get cut off almost every night now when I'm on the air, at least once per night, um, to the satellite uploads, um, to the uploading to Yahoo even, that, that told me they put a choke on my uploads and they try and get me to take some of the stuff off the site. You really do get a big hassle from every so-called service that's out there. Why they call them services when you're paying for them, I don't know. But anyway, that's the way it goes. You do get a lot of hassles. This is every day and every week of every month. The same kind of hassles go on. But uh, I do give you a lot of information. Remember, too, if you want to translations uh, or, or transcripts of these talks, go into any of the sites for English and go into Alan Watts Sentient Sentinel 
.eu for translations and other languages. They all carry the same audios, but only the Sentinel site has the translations for, for um, prints up in other languages. So make use of them while they're up there. Who knows how long they will be up there. Now, this big world order uh, was on the go, as I say, before you were born, your parents were born, or your grandparents were born. It's the plan society. It's been on the go for an awful long time. Awful long time. And many writers and philosophers over hundreds and thousands of years gave hints of the same system that's around you today. I've gone into a lot of that over the past. I might touch on some of it tonight. Back with more after this break. This is Alan Watt. We're back cutting through the matrix. And just mentioning before the break there how old this system really is. It's an ongoing system of not evolution by itself, but really a promoted direction or directed evolution, if you like, by people who truly believe in evolution long before they put out Darwin there. When you look at the old philosophers in Greece, for instance, who had an awful lot of time in their hands, it seems, and uh, they, they studied pretty well everything. Now, knowledge didn't start with Greece. It didn't start either with um, Egypt. We know that ancient Babylon as well, even previous civilizations, the Haran, the, the, the different Harian cultures that are coming up with now and different people who lived before them. They even found temples now that are 10,000 BC um, in some areas. And we know that knowledge, man's been around for an awful long, long time. And he wasn't dragging his knuckles along the floor either. He's been pretty much like us for an awful long time. And therefore knowledge has definitely been acquired and passed on. Because one thing that, that the leaders of all countries did in ancient times, they had intense interest in gathering knowledge. Intense. In, in fact, it was a survival mechanism. You couldn't have knowledge of even certain kinds of weaponry. Um, uh, just kept in the hands of, of your neighbors. You might be frightened of your neighbors because they might, might want to use it on you one day and you want to have the same kind of thing to retaliate with, if you like, a kind of Cold War syndrome. But they, they really studied everything. And the Babylonians, of course, had priesthoods that were specialized in different areas, just as the Egyptians did too. Some of them were simply scribes. Other ones literally were acted as lawyers, and they divvied up land for purchases and for wills and all the rest of it. But they also had priests taking a charge of commerce as well, what came into countries, what came out of their country. Um, and, and they did have taxes on people who sold stuff in ancient times, importers, etc., so the bookkeeping was just phenomenal. And even in ancient Sumer, we find that they had uh, classes uh, for youngsters. They found some of these schools uh, where they used clay um, and slate uh, drawing boards. Uh, and they were into algebra and everything when they were only about maybe six or, or five or six years of age. Quite something else. Thousands of years ago. So that kind of knowledge, the knowledge to understand mathematics and algebra, geometry, and so on, and basic arithmetic was very, very essential for these ancient cultures, which all really worked on commerce. Uh, that's the key to things, commerce and money. 
And before they had coined money, coined money came out around 800 BC, I believe. Uh, before that, they had um, wedge-shaped money. It was literally chiseled off sheets of, of silver. At the time, silver was the earliest commercial trading. And uh, other ones used silver or gold, and they wrapped it around their arms, forearms, like a bracelet from their elbow right to their wrist, if you were wealthy. And you just cut off a little piece here and there, and it would have it'd be weighed at the place where you were purchasing something. So commerce and money go hands in hand, you see. Um, they weren't happy enough in those days with simple barter. Uh, a dominant minority took over and realized that if they had a means of exchange, they could certainly dominate other peoples and become very wealthy. But the trick was to make other people believe that this stuff, this gold, this silver, was wealth in, it in the first place. That truly was a trick. And it's, it's, it's astonishing, really, that how, how little we know of, of um, the length of, of commerce. We know the Phoenicians were a great uh, seafaring people. Uh, they were really Canaanites. The Phoenicians are just the Greek term for the same people. But they, they ran the commercial routes for a few, century, a few centuries. They even went all the way to Britain, and they were getting tin from the mines in Britain to bring back to mix with their copper and so on, make the bronze. And they kept that secret for a couple of hundred years. That they, they, they were. It just shows you the secrecy involved in trading. No, no different than today with corporations. High secrecy. But that's the key to everything, because with the money and commerce eventually becomes a leisure class. And it's a leisure class that has time to go into the sciences. And then they called it in those days nature. All through the societies and religions, they called it nature, the studying of nature. And with the power of mathematics, some of the Greek philosophers believed uh, they could literally um, find out how nature worked and then dominate nature. But they also talked about the harmony of nature and how man himself would have to live in harmony with nature. And if you read the philosophers, especially the writings of guys like Plato, who wrote very cryptically, really, there's two or three ways of reading his stuff, and you have to be able to switch your mind to each method to understand it when you're reading the same piece. Um, he himself was an elitist. He believed at that time uh, that there were special people who were naturally intelligent and those who were just plain dumb stupid, and the naturally intelligent were the aristocrats, and the proof of it was the fact that they were aristocrats, and they put down to special breeding. And they noted, too, that those who married people or mated up with people for marriage uh, tend to provide the same kind of offspring with the same capability to, to learn and understand. They had a very poor opinion of the ordinary people who fed them and that they lived off of. Not much different than, than today, really, because when they brought Darwin along, that really was the time. Darwin didn't discover anything at all because his grandfather had already written a book and, and about the same kind of thing. It was just too early in his granddad's day to get it out there. So they refurbished it, brought it back, updated it, and bunged it out at the right time. And the Royal Society had chosen Darwin to do it. He was to be the front man. It was actually Wallace, another guy who did a lot of the legwork across the planet. But uh, they decided that Darwin was to be the front man. They always give a front man when they give you a new discovery that's to change the world or the way that we think. 
And part of it, too, was to put the final nail in the coffin of religion, get that out of, out of the way, because unfortunately for them, although they'd used religion to dominate people before, it was time to get out of the way, because religion also made people think, well, we should obey our God rather than our governments, if government was bad, you see. So that had to go, so, so that government couldn't be bad, it was just there, it was all powerful. And they knew at that time uh, that they could not have religion and people having uh, obedience to it over the government. Government was to become all-powerful as it has become since then. But mankind, too, was to bring himself down from his pedestal as a supreme being on the planet, the supreme uh, creation, and we were to be taught to believe this. And when you start to think about that and you believe it in that way, then you can think, well, we can do anything with people, anything with people. And you start seeing people as animals, basically, as the ancients already had studied people. And they did classify them along like animals, different types and categories of peoples. So today they call them systems, and they have systems analysts that do all of that kind of work. And uh, they've studied all different cultures to see what motivates them, what they have in common with other cultures, where they vary, where they've adapted to their own particular environment and their particular natures too. I was surprised, for instance, to read in the, the writings of Mills, of Mill, I should say, John Stuart Mill, and his son of the same name, that they knew the different cultures, even in Britain, what the Welsh personality was like, where their strengths and weaknesses were, where different parts of, say, the Yorkshire um, people, how they managed and how, where their strengths lay, where their weaknesses were, and how the Scots, too, uh, had certain very good powers and very good weaknesses, and how they could exploit the weaknesses. This is what it was about. How, find the weaknesses and you can exploit them. And the main ones they were looking at, especially in the military side of it, was how to completely um, take the wind out of their sails and um, make them give up psychologically, like psychological warfare. And they found, for instance, that the Scots were fantastic fighters, but if they lost on the first battle, they tended to, to, to give up hope and needed uh, to be really, really rallied by a good speaker to motivate them into returning. And on the other hand, too, uh, some of them had found that other groups of them, different clans or Highlanders, had been awfully tenacious and just kept coming back and back and back. So they looked for weaknesses and strengths in all peoples and how they had adapted to their particular environment. In the Industrial Revolution, the idea was to get everybody off in Europe as possible off the land, as many as possible, just leave enough farms just for the basic uh, food necessities, and to bring in a new system, a new system of control, where the people would adapt, as Darwin already knew, uh, they would adapt to their new surroundings because they'd have no choice, basically. And they threw up these terrible row housings, for the workers, miles and miles of these dingy places crammed the families in like crazy, and they lived in squalor and poverty as they worked down mines or in factories during the the the, the, the awful revolu- um, industrial revolutionary phase. Even even um, Benjamin Franklin, when he was off to England on, on a side route after seeing Rothschild, mind you, um, he did mention that uh, the British factory worker came out uh, with bare feet because and this was a shoe factory, so it's because they couldn't afford to buy the shoes that they made. 
So there's something for Henry Ford to think about. That's how he probably said he couldn't have his cars sold without his workers being able to afford them, so we gave him what he thought was a decent wage. But anyway, what we understand is, it's like Charles Galton Darwin and others have said, there have always been slaves. The trick is to give a system and give them money and make them believe that they're not slaves. See, the slave master otherwise has to keep them all penned up. He's got to feed them. He's got to have guards over them. And the master knows he's the master. The guards know they're the guards, and the slaves know they're the slaves. And he's got to at least give them the bare rags to cover themselves as well. Uh, Where if you give them just enough in a fixed economy, and they did have fixed economies in Britain right through a good part of the 20th century and before, uh, then they'd think they were free. They'd buy their own clothes, their own shoes, sometimes their own tools for work, and stuff like that. Now, I hear the music coming in, I think. So we'll be back with more after this break. Hi, folks, I'm back, and we're cutting through the matrix. Just prattling on here a little bit because it's a Friday and uh, talking off my top of my head here about something that's very, very important that people don't really realize. We tend to, as I say, we're born into our time. We think it's our time and therefore everything that is is all quite natural because we're born there and it exists. And it never dawns on us, at least most people, that you live in a contrived a predetermined system with a mission. It's a mission, the system that you live in. It's a mission to upgrade to the next part of the system. And all the big universities are, are part of it because they must shape the culture, shape the minds for transitions, as they like to call them, into the next phases of political correctness. It's interesting, you know, you get more out of the old communist books than you do out of the Western books. They, they tended to squirrel away some of the best books on, on national and, and uh, countrywide um, psychological operations on the whole public away from the, the peoples in, in the West and squirrel them away in very high universities for specialists who will be working in this field or ones coming into that field to take over. Uh, whereas in the communist writings, they give you a lot of these clues about the coming system because Lenin himself talks about the dictatorship. He called it off the proletariat, but it was really over the proletariat or the proles. And uh, he said it lasted, it lasted about a generation or so. That was about 70 years. And then it would kind of meld away and kind of combine with the, with the Western countries into a system which is not quite capitalist and not quite communist. And it gives you a lot more little clues, which meant, of course, that his mentors knew it back in the 1800s. And you can find other ones uh, writing about the same kind of thing, giving little clues in the French Revolution and around that period, for instance, where a lot of them came forth with this big idea of a, a new world order, a global society. And you go back even further, and again, back into the writings of the Greek philosophers, and you'll, you, you hear them talking about it too, how that man himself would have to find a way of peace 
and peace could only be brought about by those who know, meaning educated and have the proper qualities and abilities, ruling over the rest of the people in a controlled society. In, in so much and in so far as going all the way to Plato uh, and his Republic, where they would breed people to be in the guardian class, they'd breed a warrior class. Uh, with women in it too, and that's all come to be in the latter part of the 20th century onwards. And he's also talked about um, the its, the ones down below, uh, will be bred for their tasks, special-sized people for special jobs, small squat guys for miners, and tall, uh, thin people for picking apples off trees, for instance. Um, but of course, he was talking about eugenics, and breeding them along the natural way, uh, or, or natural form, in other words, but at least mating them up. Now we have literally the ability to create different kinds of humans, and we've got, had it for a long time, an awful long time, by the way, um, of how to genetically alter humanity itself. We do know that, that they were at least using what they've told us, um, the special breeding uh, mate-up technique, um, in the days of Darwin, he himself was a product of it. And I've advised people before to go into the book uh, by Ian Taylor. It's called Darwin um, and the New World Order. That's one of the titles. It's got two titles, actually. But he is a scientist himself, very respected scientist, and he gives a lot out of the bag in his book about um, the reality behind sciences, uh, and it tells you about the Darwin family and how they, for generations, had been inbred with only one other family. Well, don't believe for a minute that this particular group of people would just used the Darwins to interbreed with the Wedgwoods for generations. Um, a lot of them were in England doing the same thing at the same time because this was an old society, a very old society. And they had a mission to accomplish. And yet they find out too about their godfathers as well and who, who they became godfathers of and so on. Very important people that kept on in the scientific vein to change our society's culture towards a world type society of order, living in harmony with the world, as they kept talking about it, or nature as they couched it around the 1500s. So we, that's what we're on. Now, we truly, truly are living in um, a projected fantasy. The reality we're given by the media, they give us the daily occurrences about what's happening with fallout. They don't tell you what's behind the causes. They tell you about the fallout, and we go, tut, 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 isn't that awful? And we tear our hair out a little bit, and then we forget about it with the next day's horror. And this is how we're, we're brought along with the media today, because the media... The mainstream media is an essential arm of government, always has been. That's why you have media barns and a tight control in the media. And some of the, the higher books, of course, in the universities talk about uh, the purpose of the media being just that, to cater to the lower classes, primarily. The ones for the managing class, the managerial class, especially in governmental positions, bureaucracies, uh, they give their own magazines to, to program them in turn. And the Royal Institute of International Affairs admits that, uh, and Carl Quigley admitted that. He says, forget about the people at the bottom, they give them lots of sex and entertainment. That's what they said, sex and entertainment. And that's still the case today. Base stuff, you see. 
the ones who have to be manage you and uh, they're part of the they've got more motivation to manage you because you get better salaries and more perks more privileges uh, than the ones down below uh, they're only too happy to, to keep up with their own programming by getting the right newspapers just for them and the limited editions just for themselves of the books back with more after this You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. This is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix, and I'll, I'll stop my little prattling here just to bring us up to speed again, very, very briefly, on the fact that um, there's always been control. There's been machinations to, through wars and so on to conquer, bring in a world society and to introduce uh, unknowingly uh, to the people, that is, uh, uh, cultures that are new cultures, blends of their own, brought into a new and then their old one is lost completely as they keep upgrading you into a world culture where you're being trained what to think and how to be and how to act and, and what to say and what's acceptable, what's not acceptable without you knowing it. And most folk don't even understand that. It's behavioral psychology, and that's a big one. Most folk, literally I was watching something today where, um, and this is one of the highest universities actually, but they were talking about how they've studied everything, even when people stand up in an audience and shout encore. To most folk it looks like they all stand up about the same time, but there's actually a sequence and a pattern to it, because they study how we all behave as groups, you see, right in a theater. And they find out a certain pattern of who stands up first, and then there's a pattern as it spreads across the hall, because most folk are collective. They follow the ones that are doing something. They follow them and act automatically and behave automatically. In other words, you could also introduce a new type of behavior in a different way, and you would find the same thing would happen. It happens already with speech, for instance. Most of the new terms you've had for many, many years come from television series put out by Hollywood including the minimalistic speech, including the foul language, is put up by Hollywoods, and people just imitate, you see, and start prattling it amongst themselves. And eventually it becomes, you're almost square if you don't use it, even the foul stuff, you see. Most folk are followers. Anyway, last night uh, I talked about some um, commutarianism. That's the big way. You'd be surprised if how many thousands of foundations have been pushing this quietly. The left, what seems to be the left-wing foundations, the right-wing foundations, all pushing the same stuff because they're all one. See, they've got to have foundations to cater to every type of class there is, you see. And even people with chips on their shoulders who feel in the fringes, they use them as the, the, the foot soldiers to, to push this into society. They've always done that. And they become the ones who, who push and protest and demand and that we all accept everything that's in front of us, you know, or, or we're told to accept, I should say, even if things are disgusting to us. Anyway, I mentioned that they keep using the term in your new, for your new community and your communitarian stuff. Your local government's putting out pamphlets to you. Your, your, your federal government's putting them out. And they call you stakeholders. And a guy looked this up in a legal dictionary, and this is what he sent me. He says, a person, uh, this is a legal definition, uh, a person having in his or her possession, which is called a holding, it's not, it's not ownership, right? 
having it in your possession, holding money or property in which he or she has no interest, right or title, awaiting the outcome of a dispute between two or more claimants to the money or property. The stakeholder has a duty to deliver to the owner or owners the money or assets once the right to legal possession is established by judgment or agreement. And, and he goes on, that was from Black's Law Edition, 5th edition. Uh, that was, actually, that was from dictionary.law.com. The next one is um, Black's Law Dictionary, 5th edition. Generally, a stakeholder is a third party chosen by two or more persons to keep on deposit property or money, the right or possession of which is contested between them, and to be delivered to one who shall establish his right to it, and it is one who is entitled to an uh, interplead rival or contesting claimants to property or funds in his hands. So, it's like, in other words, they call it, supposing you were handed down your land without title, as many folk were, until out came the lawyers and all that kind of stuff, uh, and they pushed them everywhere. Um, that happened to American Indians, it happened to the Australian Aboriginals, and it has happened to the Palestinians, the, the, the new Israel says that says that, that they never had a title to the land. Well, they never thought about a title. They'd always lived in it, you see. <laughs> I mean, that's how it is. So a stakeholder always loses pretty well. You're in possession of it, but believe you me, if powerful forces want it, they're going to get it because they own the judges. That's how it always seems to be, and that's how the Indians lost pretty well everything too. Now, that's different from a, from a, a shareholder. That's why they're not using the word shareholder, they're using stakeholder. Now, these boys at the top don't make these mistakes. They're very careful with the legalities and the words that they choose to put out to us. Then we start parroting. Oh, well, yeah, we're all stakeholders in our community. No, you don't own anything in the community. You will go where those who, who really own it decide you're going to go. That's what it means. But they want you to help them to get there as you lose everything. That's what it means. Very interesting. So that's what a stakeholder is. Remember in the old days too, you see it in old westerns, you go and you drive your stake in what was going to be your land, but you had to go in to get it registered, and then the registry office would decide if you're going to have that or not. So just because you drove your stake in didn't mean you owned it. They would say yes or no, or you'd bribe them or whatever. Anyway, getting back to how people are chosen for experiments, different groups of people, and I noticed this all through traveling through Europe, how different countries literally were experimenting in different ways, especially with the youth. Um, and I knew it wasn't by accident. It was definitely controlled experiments. If you have a, a nation and people within a nation and a government ruling over them, you have a controlled experiment right there, you see. And in Holland, for instance, they brought out, uh, the government put out the drugs in the, the pubs, the bars, and uh, and basically... Um, they, they, they observed all of that for many, many years. In Holland, again, they even paid m- uh, women to go off to work and paid the guys to stay at home and watch after the babies. It was interesting to see all this kind of stuff going on. Denmark had a lot of Marxist philosophy uh, back in the 70s, taught openly in the schools, and, and the pushing the permissiveness, of course, too, to destroy any bonding in, in the future, long-term bonding. So it was interesting to travel through and see what was what, what was happening. But in Scotland, for instance, they kept the people uh, just uh, angry and um, that a welfare system came, system came in when they pretty well put most of the folk out that were living and working in mines, and they had been for an awful long time. 
but it's amazing how Scotland's becoming a, a really control freak society. And now that they have this semi, semi independent government, which isn't independent at all, they're all on board in the government with the big world plan. And the guys at the top are, are specially chosen. It's, it's the old, one of the oldest Masonic societies in, in pretty well the Western world is Scotland, Scotland really is. If you want to get on in Scotland, you have to be a Mason. But anyway, this is an article from the UK News. Taxis are squandered on nagging people out of driving their cars. They don't even wait to just give you lots of propaganda to make you feel guilty and wait for the children to grow up who don't want cars and stuff because they're indoctrination. They just go out and do this. It says, so they're squandering millions of taxpayers' money uh, on sending council snoopers into people's homes, to send you around the homes, to hector the motorists into giving up their cars, to nag you out of giving up your car. Officials from the government. So under the Scottish government's latest initiative to drive cars off the road, tens of thousands have been lectured on their own doorsteps about public transport and climate change. On their own doorsteps. Can you imagine standing listening to a government official nagging you on your doorstep? There's no legal entitlement to just ban them so that they try to nag you and scare you into giving it up. And it's hard for me to believe that I'll stand there and let them do it. It says four local authorities, Dundee, Dumfries and Galloway, East Renfrewshire and Falkirk, have lavished £10 million on a string of insulting green projects, which included uh, sending officials on door-to-door visits. But it was later revealed in the government's own evaluation of the project that the vast majority of respondents, 78%, strongly agree that they like travelling by car. Well, good for them. What were these guys going round door to door on bicycles? I don't, I doubt it. No, the taxpayers paying for their big fancy shiny cars are always new. As his figures reveal that the four councils made almost 23,000 visits since 2008 with a further 14,000 householders due a call this year. I'd tell me go on their bike. They were part of a £15 million package of initiatives funded by the Scottish Government. £15 million, eh? And councils under the Scottish National Party's Smarter Choices, Smarter smarter Places scheme aimed at reducing the number of cars on Scotland's roads. The figures obtained by Tory as Conservative Transport spokesman Jackson Carlaw show the Scottish Government spent £8.5 million since 2008 on the schemes where local authorities pumped in a further £6.5 million. Amazing. Mr. Carroll last night slammed the expenditure, saying people are perfectly capable of grasping the concept of catching a bus without being subjected to unsolicited doorstep advice sessions from government do-gooders. They're not do-gooders. You don't, your government doesn't serve you when they go around nagging you. In fact, they shouldn't be engineering the children at school either into the new systems uh, that's going to be really awful. They're going to be little green, green fanatics, believe you me. So they go on and say it's an outrageous waste of money. Why, why don't they just stop it then? Why don't they just stop it? A Scottish government spokesman said smarter choices, smarter places is encouraging Scots to reduce transport emissions by opting for sustainable alternatives to car use. Well, what are they going to use? Their roller skates or what? You know, it's just, uh, no. They won't even allow you to have a, a donkey anymore, I don't think, for if you're using it as a pack animal. That's law, I think, too, as well. Eh? Crazy, isn't it? 
And when they're doing all this kind of stuff, and so what I'm talking about here, this is the fallout, is, is you still go ahead with a social engineering. This is what they, what they mean by in their books. You'll find this in many of their books by the big boys, uh, a lifelong education. You th- they don't mean that you're going to, to, to do... Um, Night school and upgrades. No, no. Ongoing education means you keep getting programmed into what they want you to be and behave the way they want you to behave and do what they want you to do. That's what it's about. For harmony, you understand. You can't have individuals make their own choices. It's too disruptive. It's a negative influence. That's what they say, actually. Negative influence. This article here, I'm sure everybody's been prattling on about it. It's 24 multinationals moved to move their headquarters to Shanghai. This is from a CNTV. Uh, this is from China. And uh, it says uh, 24 multinational companies have decided to move their regional headquarters to Shanghai, including six Fortune 500 companies such as Valley, uh, Walt Disney, and Kraft Foods. This approach the total number of companies with regional headquarters in Shanghai to nearly 300 Nearly 500 have regional research and development centers there. Well, why scream about this? Because, I mean, didn't you notice what was happening all through the 80s and 90s? Thousands of your employment places went overseas. Thousands of them. And no one hiccuped at the time. Except the folk who were getting laid off and no one listened to them. But Walt Disney, I mean, they don't care where they go anyway. Good riddance, you know. We'll see if they can get away with their perversions over there. There's some laws there yet in China where there's nothing left in the U.S. And there's another one here, too, for a different uh, site, too. Uh, Xinhuanet is called Beijing. 24 multinational companies have decided to move the regional headquarters to Shanghai, including six Fortune 500 companies such as Valley, Wall, Disney, and Kraft Foods. Kraft Foods has gone over there. It's interesting. I think Nestle's already over there. And Nestle were fines big time because Kraft Foods is also involved with the milk industry, and Nestle were found doing what a lot of, doing something to the milk by substituting the stuff that makes it look white and taking the, the stuff out of it that is white, and for other purposes. And lots of children got awfully sick and some died. So I guess you can get away with some of that over there more so than over here. So. Shanghai is a big place for them to go, and uh, labor is cheaper, everything's cheaper, and of course they won't pay anything like the taxes they're paying over here. If they pay any at all, they are big international companies already. And most international companies don't pay any taxes at all. Now, the EU bloc, the new, the, the new, the Novo uh, Soviet bloc, which the EU is, it's an upgraded Soviet system. It is the system that Lenin talks about the merger between East and West in a generation's time or so. That's what the Soviet bloc is. It was planned to be that way. The same boys that created the Soviet Union and who already ruled Britain and other countries had designed it to be so. And it's a non-democratic system, of course, the EU Parliament. It says, states back emission trading rules. EU member states have unanimously backed commission proposals that will see carbon-emitting industries buy roughly half of their emission allowances from 2013 onwards. I mentioned a few years ago that they were giving millions of, of euro and, and pounds out to international corporations for free to start trading, to get the thing kicked off, you see. And I've read articles since where they actually made profits off them. And they haven't even bought any yet, right? So, um, so half of them will have to start buying them uh, by 2013 onwards. 
the agreement by a committee of national experts. What's a national experts and nothing? <laughs> CO2. National experts, eh? Uh, relates to the phase three of the EU's emissions trading system with companies currently receiving their allowances for free. And under the plans, Brussels has pushed the idea of a single European auctioning system to sell the pollution permits in the future. Well, we know for a fact, because it was in the papers and I've read it on the air too, that uh, Mr. Rothschild's private, the, pri- the banking family's private bank in Switzerland has to, go, has to do with the, all the world's carbon trading. It's all they go through their bank. Can you imagine the profit they'll make in holding that stuff for even overnight or a week, just on the interest alone, right, for the whole world? Right? Amazing, eh? Here's control for you. And people get all upset. Oh, don't talk about the Rothschilds. That's conspiracy stuff. Well, how come for, for about 300 years these guys have been running the planet? I mean, they've just bought up most of India. Uh, because, and they're putting in their GM crop through buyer, you know, which they own too. That's their family name. So I'll put these links up on the site, cuttingthroughmatrix.com, at the end of the, of the show, and you can look at them for yourself. But I want to give you a, a humorous one, but a very important one. And I can't, I won't read it on the air, but it's from Rex Murphy, who, who generally has been on CBC television in Canada, who does a kind of, um, a spiel every other night there on something with some humor in it, but a lot of fact as well. And often you can get through to people with a bit of humor, but he really puts the green agenda as it really is. And, and it, it tells you how the, anything with eco on it now, eco this and eco that, and everybody's jumped on the eco bandwagon and how British Petroleum, uh, pushed itself before the oil spill there as an eco-friendly company. And so everybody's on in the act, right? To make cash off it. And, um, and, and how it's because the eco word and green the terminology has become holy terminology. That it's almost like saying the word anti-Semitic if you if you don't if you don't like the word green or eco or you're a Nazi. I mean that's what it's meant to do actually. You know, it's meant to override any argument, just saying oh, but it's green or it's, it's eco-friendly or blah blah blah. It overrides any logical debate or argument. It, in fact, it stops any debate. It prevents it. So I'll put this article up and you can have a good chuckle at that. It's, it's quite good. You even get you a little bit of Faustus and Mephistopheles and it's very interest, interesting stuff for those who have a bit of uh, IQ and a good laughter ability. Back after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix just finishing up the last few minutes and I'm going to put another link up too. It's, it's called PANA, P-A-N-N-A, from Green Revolution to the Gene Revolution and it will give you a, a, some of the history and rundown on biotechnology for the, for your food and so on, what's been going on, how the World Bank, this great wonderful thing that goes under the cover of the United Nations, this independent banking group, they call itself the World Bank, made up by the same international bankers, of course, is in charge of so much of pushing the, the GMO food on uh, the farmers across the whole world and destroying their, their natural crops altogether. Uh, how they do it, how they rake 
big money in from these, these countries too and how they're all in bed with um, the private corporations that like Bayer and so on and uh, Monsanto that are pushing the stuff across the planet. So I'll put that link up. Plus, I'll also put up another one, and it's to do with Bayer. Now, Bayer is the Rothschilds' family, a private family businesses, because their real name was Bayer before they adopted Rothschild. And uh, they still use Bayer uh, chemicals and Bayer pharmaceuticals in Switzerland, and they do the, their Bayer biotech industry too. And this is from Bloomberg. It is Bayer loses the fifth straight trial over the U.S. rice crops. They, they almost bankrupted, well, maybe they have bankrupted a lot of farmers in the U.S. by mixing in some of their GM uh, rice with uh, their own, uh, with the normal rice, and then the farmers couldn't export it abroad. No one wanted it. And so they've had umpteen different trials, and so far they haven't paid anything, but they're supposed to owe millions. And we'll see how far it goes as they go through trial after trial uh, and claiming they did all the right things and so on. And then there's another one to do with Canada. And it's amazing how they sort of bring you all into the guilt trip, eh? Because uh, this one here is from the Australian Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. This is from the government. Makes second takeover offer from in, for Intel in Australia. They want to take over Australia's roads and toll road them. And this is that they're using investment money uh, from the, the Canadian pension plans. It's a government plan. All, everybody in Canada pays into the Canadian pension plan. So Canada's second biggest pension manager has made a takeover offer for an Australian toll road operator. The $3.5 billion for Intel Group has its second multi-billion dollar offer in less than a year for an Australian toll road operator. Canada Pension Plan Investment Board yesterday revealed a non-binding cash offer of 1.535 per staple security for Intel, which manages interest in the Westlink M7 motorway in Sydney and the 407 ETR in Toronto, and is one of the spin-off groups of the former Macquarie uh, Infrastructure Group. So they're they're, they're making a big uh, move to take over roads and so on. But let's see who the other investors are in with this Canada pension plan, because they always have. In the British Commonwealth countries, and these crown corporations, they call them, there's a select group of uh, private investors. They never tell you who they are. Even the CBC that works for the government couldn't find out who they are. And, and they use, uh, they have the controlling uh, shares over everything. It's interesting, isn't it? That's probably the same people, I would think, have the controlling shares over every big international corporation on the planet there is. That's what I personally think. And it'll be a small group of people, very, very small. And probably have had this for generations, who knows, maybe centuries. From Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your God's go with you. <laughs>